The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. No, not right-wing, that's just right, and I want you to write this number down while we're talking about writing, and the number is 519-661-3600 if you want to join the conversation today. Uh, We'll be talking about a number of things over the coming hour. I don't know if I'll get every subject in, and a few that will surprise us, I'm sure. But, of course, uh, there's been a lot of talk about gas prices still being high, gas price gouging. want to talk a little bit about the Fraser Institute's uh, report on taxes that they released uh, some time ago last week. Uh, didn't really have a time to follow up on that. Are you a slave? Do you think you're paying too much in taxes? Because that's something we'll be getting into a little later. If you missed uh, my last week's show and you missed the orientation of what I mean by uh, just right and what I mean by being right, it's uh, um, basically I'm not going to go through the whole thing again as I did last week, but uh, I will be covering that again at some time in the future. Um, but to make it very short, uh, I think I'll just use a simple phrase. I think on the on the right I'm talking about a government as referee. On the left you're talking about a government as a player in the game. Now, last week, uh, again, I just had to do a follow-up on the Gazette spoof and all the issues surrounding it. Uh, If you tuned in last week, you heard me going on my uh, little diatribe for almost about 40 minutes about the spoof, people's reactions to it, and some of the things about um, feminism and the feminist reaction. But... uh, and I did say at the beginning of, of the show, before I s- expressed all my opinions, that I had not as yet seen the spoof, and I promised everyone that I will take a look at it between that week and today, and I have seen the spoof now. And, you know, after looking at all the reaction to it, I've got to say, folks, uh, holy smokes, get a life. Um, this this whole thing, you have to look at it in context. This whole thing was a spoof issue of the of the Gazette. I mean, the front cover of the Gazette looks like some old monster magazine that I used to read when I was a kid. And and the story that seems to have offended all the feminists is, is just a, a nonsense little story. It's a cartoon, practically, talking about vaginas running around and stuff like this, and then the free press gets a hold of it and, you know, reports that, uh, you know, that there's a rape of a student going on with a nightstick by the police chief. Now, yeah, the the police chief's name appeared in there. He did do something with the nightstick, but he was chasing stick figures around, as far as I could tell from everything I've read here, Um, and with a loudspeaker, not a nightstick. I guess he was given uh, some running vagina a speech or something. But anyways, it was a spoof on Take Back the Night, uh, Take Back the Night March, and they called it Take Back the Nighty March. But when I look at the rest of the paper, I mean... There's all kinds of, quote, articles that you could be offended by, and I know there were some complaints levied. Uh, There is a full-page article here headed, A Playboy's Mansion, Western's Highest Roller, Paul Davenport Guides Us Through His Palace of Party. You know, and they've got pictures of people, obviously, who have probably just had sex, they're snorting coke, they're drinking booze. I mean, this is all satire and silliness. And if you can take it in the right spirit, it's fun, and you can laugh at it. If you can't, uh, well, you can't. But does that give you a right to go around to telling the people who are having a little chuckle, um, you know, that they can't say that? Now, I know there's people who are sensitive about the issues, etc., and and what they regard as the key issues in this, and that it's all about violence against women. That's not what this is about. And as far as I can tell, no one was uh, saying anything bad about violence against women or advocating it or any such thing. Um, 
you know, and this explains, too, after I looked at it, why Joe Matthias so carefully worded his article, quote, the article contained content about London Police Chief Murray Faulkner raping a student with a nightstick. Well, that's, when, when someone writes a, a paragraph that says it contained content and isn't more explicit than that, you can bet there's some uh, spinning going on and some interpretations and... Uh, to be f- to be blunt, there's a campaign going on, and let's see who's actually running it here. We find that there's some 20 people from the free, according to the Free Press, that complained to the uh, to the Gazette about this spoof, and they seem to be very organized. I noticed in the Free Press, I got caught up on my uh, newspaper clipping, and I see here uh, there are three letters that I noticed regarding to it. Two of them by by organizers, you know, Women's Events Committee of London, Executive Director, London Abuse Women's Center. Now. I hadn't seen these before, and I've really got to uh, to address a couple of the things that are that are in these letters. The particular is one by Megan Walker that I hadn't seen, and I know she said some of these things last week, even here on this station. Uh, you know, quote: One in four women is abused by her intimate partner. In Canada, one woman or child is sexually assaulted every minute of every day. Now, this she's this is in her letter to the editor, and. Uh, you know, just do the math. 60, one minute every day, okay? Going on, 60 times 60 is 360 times 24, 24 hours a day. That means 8,640 sexual assaults a day times 365. That means 3,153,600 sexual assaults in Canada per year times 10 is over 30 million. Like, do the math. Is that even possible? You know, like, <laughs> and then, of course, she calls those responsible for the... Now, this is how how lobbyists play their game. Eh? You see, they, they, they stick their issue in front of you, and they say, oh, look at here, violent women, you can't possibly feel bad about that. And then they go and attack a, a cartoon spoof using uh, the sympathy for violence and the sympathy for victims of violence as their leverage point to get something else out of the people. So basically what she wanted was a public apologize, people would be removed from their position. I talked about all this uh, last week, but uh, I noticed that she also wants them to discontinue of writing an April Fool's edition. Now, <laughs> how petty can you get? Uh, um, oh, boy, I didn't know that she thought that she was everybody's mother here on campus, but what can you do? And to adopt anti-hate guidelines. Well... You know, as to that latter, I kind of almost hope that they do adopt anti-hate guidelines of some sort, because would the feminist movement be allowed on the campus here if that were the case? If you heard the stuff I read out of a book called Take Back the Night last week, wasn't that just hate literature? Wasn't it, uh, you know, just anger coming out and seething, just wanting to get back at everybody? I mean, one person's cause is another person's hate, you know, and, and there's people that that uh, actually do not agree with the, with the basic feminist spin on this whole thing. But anyways, you know, this f- makes me think back to the early days when, uh, in 1980s, when I first got involved in uh, political activity, and I was debating a lot of feminists at the time. And um, I remember one in particular who might be, this might be the thinking that causes these kind of statistical anomalies being created by uh, by feminists when they say, like, you know, one in four every minute of every day. Well, how do you define rape, you know? There's been some outrageous definitions of rape. I remember back in the 80s, again, there was a local feminist here by the name of Gail Hutchison who used to say that a woman was raped if she has sex with her boyfriend because he threatens to end the relationship otherwise. And according to her thinking... The woman's freedom of choice would be threatened, and therefore she has sex against her will. Well, <laughs> not only have you thrown the concepts, concepts of freedom of choice and force and consent right out the window, you've, you've belittled what a real rape is, and, and, and the whole concept of violence. And when you start calling every relationship a rape, um, you know, something else is going on there. Uh, I think some local people might know what that is in this case. But let's face it, a woman who's faced with the choice of sleeping with someone to continue their relationship, that person has an option. She can go or not. And if she chooses to, that's called consent. 
And consent is means that you agree, whether you like it or not, whether you're doing it for another payoff or whatever. Uh, you know, there's nothing in the nature of consent that says you have to like everything you consent to. And some people do things uh, for the strangest of reasons. In contrast, again, you know, you're talking about a woman who's faced with a real rape situation. Now, she's got no good option. She either surrenders to her attacker or risks physical harm. That's not a choice. And that's what should be called a real rape. I mean, you know, the feminists are really losing it when they, when they go on this whole uh, rape, anti-male, anti, anti, even the anti-porn thing is, is largely a factor of this. And it's, it's funny when you look at uh, the society in, in general on issues of this nature, looking at the free press here, just, just to show you the difference in opinions that are out there uh, with attitudes towards sexual, you know, literature and things like that. Article from the Free Press, February 8th, uh, by Jennifer Parks, under the Sex Files. Adult entertainment, is pornography en enhancing or eroding your relationship? Ask your mate if the cheap thrills are mutual. Now that's, to me, a little bit more of a healthy way of looking at the issue, rather than going bonkers and trying to create political situations that uh, have no bearing on the issues in and of themselves in that nature. So again, you know, I looked at this whole situation. Um, we've been fooled again. I think, uh, is this a tempest in a teapot? Uh, no, no tempest, no teapot, I'm afraid. But what we have seen is a very well-orchestrated lobby effort on the part of local women's groups who seized an opportunity and capitalized on the guilt and anxiety and that super sensitivity that they've been so successful to call on so many people. Not only... Did they not meet any resistance, which I find is very strange, but according to the free press, of course, they got a complete capitulation on the part of the Gazette over a complete non-issue, over a cartoon parody, and they're going to lose their freedoms and their right to express themselves and to criticize in a legitimate forum all over uh, this meaningless attack that didn't libel anybody, didn't, uh, you know, there was no reality to it. Now, in the context of the other articles in the spoof edition, this parody was, you know, barely noticeable. So clearly a handful of feminists went out of their way to emphasize and highlight it in a completely misrepresentative way, and with the help of the London Free Press, uh, this utterly silly and funny piece of fluff. So, you know, major lesson. In addition to being, uh, you know, man-hating, anti-freedom, anti-capitalists, as, and I read those words directly from the book, uh, Take Back the Night, last week, uh, feminists clear they, they have no sense of humor and no sense of fair play. Um, feminism literature, as so much of it that I see, is just profoundly offensive and hateful and politically misguided in almost every way I can imagine. But you won't see me running to Human Rights Commission or forcing ethical codes about my sensitivity to, you know, their irrationality. Anyways, it's, you know, it's too bad that this is all getting so much play. Uh, there's a little more going on here. I'll follow up a little more right after these ads. And when we return, I want to talk about a little bit uh, what's going on in politics with all this rampant sexism. Are our politicians going crazy? Back in a minute. Join us at after the break. back. I'm Bob Metz. This is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And the number to call if you want to join a conversation, ask any questions, get involved in a debate is 519-661-3600. Uh, just left the issue of feminism and what's going on on campus and some things. But, you know, if we're supposed to live in such a, a uh, you know, racist-free and sexist-free society, it's remarkable how our politicians just don't seem to see it that way. I, I just see rampant sexism in politics. All of our major party leaders literally want more women in the legislature because 25% doesn't seem to be enough in, in certain cases. You know, and, and we've seen it uh, with Dion. Uh, Stefan Dion on the federal level wants to uh, uh, make sure he has more women in, in the parliament. And ironically, there's a couple of local candidates who are vying for the liberal uh, seat. I think it was in London Fanshawe who found they were kind of being left out of the process because they happened to be male. Uh, same thing's going on provincially with the NDP and with the Conservatives. It's like all parties are in on this madness that they, uh, that they 
think is not being sexist by literally picking one sex over another rather than over their, their qualifications. Look, women have had, had the vote, you know. Women are 50% of the population. If they're not voting for women or if not enough women are running, this has nothing to do with sexism or, or discrimination or anything of that nature. It's just the kinds of choices that people do make when they get into uh, or not don't want to get into politics. I tell you, I'm in politics myself, and women generally do not want to um, get into politics as such. They're not into uh, the whole concept of politics. Some of them are, and they have the freedom. And In fact, they get quite encouraged. They have an advantage over most people uh, in terms of uh, being moved through constituency associations and ridings and things like that because, hey, it's the end thing to do. It's a fad. It's, uh, it's kind of that kind of a thing. So uh, there's certainly no obstacles in their way, so we don't have to push them in there, do we? Is that, is that what being equal is all about? Is, is, uh, is that what's happening here? Anyways, enough of that. You want to do a little follow-up, too, on... Uh, didn't mention this last week at all, which is kind of strange, and that's, um, um, I guess what I'll call the intellectual fallout from the Virginia Tech murders. That's what I call them. I call them just out-and-out -out murders. One guy went kind of nuts there, but uh, some of the response to these things have been a little bit uh, uh, disturbing to say. It's the same old issues, always coming back. Everybody takes a, a, a tragedy of some sort, and then they push their issues on it. A couple that uh, caught my attention. Um, listening in to this same hour on uh, here on CHRW uh, this past Monday, and... Um, I heard some discussion on this issue, and it uh, comes back to a theme that I keep coming back to, and that's the fact that you know people are blaming objects for the behavior of individuals. Um, I heard some of the folks talking here on the station that you know they're asking the question, "How do you balance the rights of a disturbed individual with the rights of society?" and and sort of believing that there's been no way to discover, no, no way discovered to do that yet, and yet we have. It's called property rights. Uh, you cannot prevent crime, you, but this guy was a like a like, like was, walk, was a walking uh, sign of some sort. People should have had the right to disassociate from them, but apparently he felt he had a right to be there, and no one was doing anything to stop him. Um, I think that was just an, a mistake, an exercise of judgment. I think they had the right to do something, and people are just reluctant. When they see someone in that state, you can't predict a person's actions. Um, a person could be acting very strange and say strange things and never be a violent uh, danger to people. And some guy that looks like, you hear it so often, eh? Oh, he's a nice guy who's living next door, uh, seemed a nice guy, had a nice family, and, oh, I didn't know he killed uh, 94 people. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's sort of the shock that people always get. Um, but, of course, the big issue that came out of it was, oh, gun control. Gun control would solve all of, all of these problems. Um, you know, on a single issue, in hindsight, you can say, well, if nobody owned a gun, uh, this might not have happened. But how do you know? How do you really know it wouldn't have been worse? How do you know, in the absence of gun ownership, this guy wouldn't have gone out and built himself a little bomb or made one like uh, those two guys did... Oh, how many years ago was that where they blew the front of a building off just using, um, you know, manure type of uh, bombs? I forget what they call those. But uh, if you're really determined to do damage and you're, and you're going at it, you're going to do it. And I think it's very uh, unfair to the United States, both to its system, about... Um, I heard Dr. David Spencer, who's from the Graduate School of Journalism here on campus, saying that uh, you know, America is a society built on guns and blood. Um, wow. I don't think so. I think America is a society built on the concept of individual rights and freedom. And if you want to look at societies built on guns and blood, I would look at almost every totalitarian nation in the world. Uh, we are tremendously disturbed by the fact that you know, of random acts of violence. That seems to scare us more than uh, having a, a country come down on you and, and you know, the, the government itself doing damage to you. One of the first things I learned when I got into politics and started reading philosophy and history was that in the history of mankind, this might sound strange to you, but 
people are very it's it's not the common thing to be in danger by a foreign government and worry about invasion the greatest dangers constantly to citizens and the most damage ever done to citizens has been by their own governments through tyranny through oppression not through invasions and things like that and that at the root of that understanding is what the right to ownership of guns is all based about in a free society and whether you like it or not now i've never owned a gun never had one uh, don't really like guns but i do feel that i have the right to own one if i felt i should should have one you know um but the fact is that people confuse uh, random acts of violence with uh, as though it's any different in the other countries you know you're not hearing what's going on in england in europe in some of the eastern countries where you just don't hear about it because it's not in our news and they have just as many issues and uh, you know bombings and violence and basically people are always getting hurt or the disarmed so a really uh, strange article here in the uh, I don't even know what paper I got this out of. I'm assuming this is out of the London Free Press, but the uh, written by Rachel Marsden out of New York. And, um, you know, again, she says uh, she's, a, she's opposed to the right to bear arms and uses some arguments that I just have heard so many times. And, of course, she's saying the same thing about my arguments. Well, I've heard yours so many times. But, um, you know, she says uh, one of the things that she does not agree with is that this tragedy could have been avoided had other students been armed. And that may be true to a point, but it could have been minimized, couldn't it? And why why, why do people think that way? You know, I had a relative in Miami who used to own a handgun, and it probably saved his life two or three times. Uh, twice in his parking lot because he was being held up by somebody. And uh, one other incident, never had to use it. But he was thankful he had it, because if he hadn't, someone could have got hurt. Now, here's the point. That's not going to be a statistic anywhere. You won't be reading about that. How many people were, were protected by a citizen who had a gun? Because if the assumption is that everybody's crazy, well, then we might as well give it up from the beginning. And when you actually consider the number of guns that are in existence, that are out there, whether you like it or not, and it's not an issue of liking it, or you just got to deal with the reality of it. And if you are a free citizen, you do have a right to self-defense. And if somebody says you can't have a gun, well, guess what? Uh, logic only dictates that the police can't have guns either, because that's where they get their right to act on your behalf, is that's something that the government does with the, quote, consent of the governed. So, and to me, it's not so much about being armed as having the right to be armed. And I think uh, that's a deterrent. You know, if somebody's coming at you, they might not know that you're armed, but if they even know that you have the right to, um, then that might give them a second thought. You might have a gun. It's interesting. I remember John Stossel on 2020 went around uh, on this issue, and he went into the prisons, people who were busted breaking into people's uh, homes using guns and stuff. And uh, some of these guys are real professionals. And unanimously, they all agreed that they love going to those states where there's gun control because that's the place where they can get into homes and rob people and, and hold them up and be relatively assured of li very little resistance. And, of course, the police can't arrive in time. And that's what blows me away, this cold argument by, by, by a woman who I know is, has, maybe has her heart in the right place and wants to think that making guns uh, go away will just make everything better. But anyway, she says, realistically, the gunman will always have the benefit of planning and surprise and will have fired off a few rounds before any others can dig their piece out of their baggy jeans. Boy, what is that all about? Well, think about it. It took over nine minutes for the police to arrive. And is she saying that somebody can't pull a gun out of their baggy jeans? I think there's a... I don't, maybe she has, has a fashion problem here. Um, and that they can't do that in a nine-minute period? Um, that's absurd. I, you can just see the emotion here. I wish guns would go away. I wish guns would go away. And in the emotion, uh, create a greater problem. Because what happens, too, is when you make guns illegal and you just make ownership illegal, you just quintuple the number of criminals out there. You're, you're a criminal or at least a civil lawbreaker of some sort by just mere ownership, even though you're not a threat to anybody, even though you might, might only be collecting guns. Maybe you're, you believe in a gun for self-defense, which I think is, is, a, is a rational and legitimate reason to want to have a gun.
But, uh, you know, don't count on the police to uh, protect you. Police are recursive. They come after you've been robbed. They come after you've been beaten. They come after the store's been, uh, you know, looted and stuff like that. They're not going to be standing out there preventing something because they can't predict it unless they already know something in advance. And um, so it's not that simple and clear and cut uh, a situation. Now, here's an argument I used to hear, too. She actually, I can't believe she used this again. This isn't the same article. And, um, you know, she, she thinks rifles are fine, which is very interesting because there's a lot of people uh, in rural areas who, who are inaccessible to police. Again, she's assuming that the whole thing's all about how fast the police can get to, quote, get to a crime scene to, quote, protect you. Um, well, you know, when it comes right down to it, ultimately you're, you're really responsible for your own protection, and if something happens, uh, thank goodness we do have a justice system. That's what the police are here for, to institute justice, and that in the long run one, one assumes that having seen justice enacted, that will, that's what ultimately reduces uh, the crime and certainly the nature of people who, ha- who are predisposed to committing crimes. But, says Rachel Marsden, why stop at handguns? If my weapon of choice is a nuclear bomb or a rocket launcher, why can't I keep some in my basement for the purpose of self-defense, just in case a neighbor decides to get uppity? Well, of course, that's the silly argument that comes out at the end, but to which I can only say that if your neighbor has, does have a bomb, then, yeah, you should have one, too, because, uh, you know, it's totally silly. Uh, a nuclear bomb is not a defensive weapon, but it can be but not in the hands of an individual. It's not. It's just the power is too great in terms of an individual. The only thing an individual could use a nuclear bomb for is uh, to really blow up his backyard or to, to do something quite offensive in terms of an attack on a great number of people. So, uh, you know, I'm just thinking in the future, I wonder if they'd ever license people to have something like that. But in any case, it's a silly argument. And, and, of course, if you could apply the argument, and if people did have nuclear bombs in their basement, then, yeah, you should have one, too. Although, uh, what a pointless argument. But trying to create, you know, connect a nuclear bomb to a, uh, a handgun. Let's, let's give it a break. Uh, people have a right to self-defense. I think that's a fundamental of freedom. I don't think you can uh, give that up and expect to live in a free society. It has been my observation in history that uh, whenever people give up that right, um, governments assume it, and they continue to assume it, and a process begins, a process that's almost not stoppable. Anyways, I'm Bob Metz. This is Just Right on CHRW 94.9, and we'll be right back after these brief messages. It's Bob Metz returning. I'm this just is just right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Uh, you want to call if you want to join in on the conversation. Um, what's the number here? Oh, I forgot the number. Six six one thirty six hundred. Is it? Is that correct? And uh, with a five one nine in front of it, of course. And if you want to join in the conversation, please do uh, do do so. Thought I'd move on. I. I uh, wanted to get into uh, a couple other issues here. We've got a bit of time to go here. Just a, a side issue first. You know, I want to deal with this again in a, in a larger way in the future. I did a whole show uh, when I was sitting in for Jim a few weeks ago on the whole global warming and environmental issue. And, of course, there's a lot going on about this. This is going to be the driving issue of the time, and, I'm, and to really handle it properly, I should put a lot more more time into that issue and and do some other things. But, you know, there's a fundamental principle in the whole environmental issue that I think is constantly being avoided, and it hel- it's partially responsible because of the, or caused rather by the, the type of language we use. Uh, we, we do it innocently. I do it myself. Uh, I heard Jim Chapman a couple weeks ago when he was talking about cleaning up the environment, um, and that's the term I'm talking about, cleaning up the environment. You know, everybody uses the term not really realizing that there's sort of a contradiction in there. Uh, and this is it. Uh, what I want to know is, what, when you're cleaning up the environment, uh, where do you put the mess? <laughs> is there any place on the planet, or even beyond it for that matter, that isn't part of the environment? 
you know, I heard Jim Chapman talking about cleaning up our landfill sites. Um, what does that mean, really? You know, you pick it all up and you move it over and put it in another landfill site? Or what do you do? You take it and you put a big pile and you burn it, and then you've got a different kind of pollution. Or you keep using it, you know? Because when we talk about waste, it's really funny. Waste always means something that you don't need and that you don't want. The same thing could exist if it is wanted and it's not considered waste. And it depends, of course, upon the application. It's really funny with all the fuss about these light bulbs and stuff, uh, that they waste energy. Um, I don't really see it that way. I don't think you get something for nothing. Uh, I've seen some of these high-energy light bulbs. Uh, the building I live in already has them in all the hallways, has, have been there for a couple of years now. And that makes sense to me because they're on 24 hours a day. And if you've got a light bulb that's running 24 hours a day, it makes sense that it be low energy, that it be high efficiency in terms of its lifespan. Uh, but, you know, do I really need a high efficiency light bulb in my closet? Does that make sense? Uh, putting in a light bulb, and some of these light bulbs take uh, quite a few seconds just to warm up and to click in, if these are the ones I'm thinking about, you know, uh, to give you the kind of light you want. And by the time you want what you've got in that closet, you can walk in and out before the light's even on. And it, I don't call that efficient. Um, I can see a lot of people. Oh, and the other thing that people say is inefficient about incandescent bulbs is that the fact that they give off heat. Well, that, that might be a disadvantage in some cases, but I found it to be an advantage. I found uh, sometimes in my one study at home, I can heat the room just by having the lights on. I don't have to turn the heater on. So I'm not wasting what's coming off those light bulbs. Uh, I'm actually using the heat. And if I had cool bulbs in place, I could just see me turning the heater on to make up for the loss. So, again, it all depends on upon application and where you're going to use it and what you mean when you say uh, clean up the environment by waste and, and proper usage. And, and um, it's just uh, ridiculous to what extent we're going to with this whole thing, when really what it's all about is rationing. Our governments are incapable of producing the energy that we need. So they start going after the consumers, the household consumer, to, uh, to make sure there's enough energy left over for industry. You know, and light bulbs, are, by the way, are on at nighttime, you know. Uh, when industry isn't going full tilt, when the demand on power is down, uh, they're generally not running all during the daytimes. Again, except for, like I explained, in apartment buildings and things, because the hallways are, are dark day and night because they don't have windows. So that just makes sense. But uh, it's getting, I'm starting to wonder if the whole term cleaning up the environment is just completely a political term. And it, dis it kind of disguises the reality that the only th way we, we can improve our environmental quality is through technology and wealth. And the irony here, of course, is that those are the two things that most environmentalists are completely opposed to. That's actually the, the target of their attacks in so many ways. They're attacking capitalism. They're attacking free markets. They're attacking uh, investment. And it's, it's funny, you know, it's really nice to be able to say you can go, high ener or, or, or go low energy with high efficiency bulbs, but somebody had to invent that first. All those processes had to be in place and the marketplace kind of eases things in, whereas when, when a politician sees something and he goes, oh, look at that, that would be good for everybody, I'm going to force it on everybody. And in so doing, not only possibly without knowing it, ruins what might have happened with that particular invention, but may have prevented a few others in the process, because everything the government touches is petrified, it freezes, it doesn't, uh, um, you know, it just doesn't come back in the same way that anything the government touches. It's not going to work. So, you know, really, environment, environmentalists, such as they are, and such as the, the issues being presented to us today, they don't want us to really clean up the environment. Uh, they, they don't want any mess in the first place. That's really where they're coming from. They, it's not about cleaning up. It's don't make a mess in the first place. Don't pollute. Don't do this. And therefore, no production no industrialization, let's go back to the farm, let's live like, uh, you know, Luddites, and which David Suzuki is perfectly, you know, free to do, but I don't think he has to drag the rest of us with him. But uh, that's just some of my thoughts on the whole thing about uh, cleaning up the environment. It's just one of those catchphrases that is, is almost meaningless to me because I'm always thinking, well, where the heck are you going to put anything that you're cleaning up? Uh, another issue change change gears entirely yes the price of gas is still up around a buck a liter a little over that i guess 
and uh, there's a lot of complaints about it. I know there's a few websites that have been been set up, uh, you know, to boycott certain companies. I get a kick out of people that just don't understand the law of supply and demand, or they think uh, the marketplace has to work in some mystical way to give them what they think is a fixed price, uh, absolute value of things. Um, you know, we tend to forget that Canada is the largest exporter to the United States, and that, um, yes, there have been a few little disasters lately in terms of our refineries. The average person does not realize how close to the edge we are in terms of our production of oil. We are really dependent on foreign oil, largely because we haven't increased our production capacities here. Thanks again to uh, environmentalist movements, uh, restrictive uh, trade practices, all kinds of things that have made uh, not only finding oil, but alternate energy sources. Um, you know, you think the oil companies only care about oil. Well, I'll tell you, if they found something that was more efficient than oil and they could sell it, they'd sell it. They're in the business of making profit, not of making oil per se. Um, it's really funny that, uh, y you know, when, when you have a low supply of something, the price has to go up. That's just the way it works. Uh, something is not worth something just because it costs X dollars to make it. Uh, I heard a number of people argue, for example, uh, that say it costs $3 a barrel to get oil out of the ground, but uh, they might charge 30 on the world market or 50 or 90 or 100 or whatever it might, might be going for because that's the demand on the product. It might actually cost, let's say, even, if, it even, if it even only cost a dollar a barrel to get it out of the ground, that doesn't take into account a gazillion other factors. That's just the cost of getting it out. What about time? How many barrels can you get out of the ground at a dollar each? In what frame of time will that production rate meet the demand? And that's where the problem is. And it's really funny that at the same time that people want us to cut back on energy and, you know, get go green, the very people, the very left that is screaming that, is the same one that wants to see oil prices and gas prices down and subsidized when they actually go up, which is one of the major things. That's how you're going to slow down uh, usage is to raise prices, but the prices shouldn't go up arbitrarily. That's not an answer to anything. If the price goes up arbitrarily, you're going to have all kinds of problems and shortages, which is what happens, and this is what the situation here is in, uh, in Ontario right now. So prices are going to stay high until the reserve levels get back up, till demand drops a little bit, and then they'll go down again. And you won't hear anybody complain about that part. I guarantee you, they, they just do not complain when the prices go down. Uh, but in the meantime, then, there, then up comes this other issue, um, excess profits. Um, you know, when prices are higher, sure, it might have still cost the oil company one, two, three, four, five bucks a barrel to actually produce it, but when prices go up, that's not just to create excess profits, and I've tried arguing this to many people in the public, and they just don't get it. it it's to control the supply. You want to, you don't want to run out of something. This is why you often see gas stations on a corner, uh, the price is going up and down on one corner, down on the other, and people don't understand it. Could be a million things going on. Uh, for example, suppose you're a gas station owner and your tanks are low. Say they're getting down to a quarter or an eighth and you're figuring, well, i got about an hour, an hour and a half left on these tanks uh, given normal traffic. I don't want to run out. just got a call from my supplier in Toronto. His truck's not going to be here for three hours. Well, that's a problem. Price goes up. He doesn't want to run out of gas. That's the worst thing that could happen. You'd rather have a price high and still have the gas available when needed than not have it at all. And when the truck arrives, down goes the gas, incrementally perhaps. But, of course, there's a general price that uh, you can't go below or above because uh, that's what the market dictates. And i got to make it clear, it is the market dictating. Oil companies cannot sell gas and oil at any price they want because, for the simple fact, we can't afford it. So it's in their interest to price something at a certain price that can make the most people possible afford it and that's what's always going on in the marketplace remember terence corkin writing an article not too long ago in the national post uh, describing how yeah there's an oil company conspiracy they're conspiring to keep prices low 
Sometimes even when they're short, they you know have a shortage. They they manipulate the price in your favor to keep you coming to the tanks. They don't want you to start thinking about alternative energy sources quite yet, unless they're in on 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 it. So they want to keep those prices low. And I think uh, we tend to forget that right now our prices in Ontario are about what world prices have been for quite a while. Uh, you can expect them to go down again. I see them going you know going down to around eighty cents a liter, maybe even a little less in the long term. But you have to allow the market to do its thing, and that means production must be increased. And that's what those excessive profits do. The, quote, excessive profits that you know companies make during shortages are the very profits they need to increase production because they have to invest that in something so that they can put out more of those barrels of oil uh, per hour, per minute, per day, per whatever. But anyways, uh, you know, people want to believe that there's a conspiracy. Nobody can control prices. Uh, it's just not possible. You can ask anything you want. I mean, you could have a house. You could have. Uh, you could ask a million bucks for your house <laughs> and be perfectly uh, free to do so. But would you get a million bucks for your house, uh, unless it was worth that, of course? Uh, the answer is no. And uh, if people don't have the money to buy your product, then guess what? You're not going to sell very much of it, and then the price starts dropping again. So there's two ways, two ways to make those prices go, go down. One is to increase the production of what's being sold, and the other is to decrease the demand. And unfortunately, that's the only thing governments are into. They want to ration. They want to decrease the demand because fundamentally, government is incapable of production, and that's why we have production problems in any area very heavily regulated or controlled by government. Anyways, we'll continue on the other side of these ads. I'm Bob Metz. This is Just Right on CHRW 94.9, where we'll, we will be with you till noon. Back right after these few messages. This is Just Right, and you're with Bob Metz on CHRW 94.9 FM. Be with you for the next 15 minutes or so. Uh, 661-3600, area code 519 if you care to call in. And uh, comment about any of the subjects I've raised so far, coming into a new one now, and that is the Fraser Institute report on taxation that I heard about on April 16th. I guess that was Monday, around Monday last week. Uh, some very disturbing statistics here in terms of taxation. Uh, first of all, they said that 35% of the average Canadian's income is spent on food, clothing, and shelter. 35%. 45% of the average Canadian's income is spent on taxes. I don't know about you, but 45%? Come on, folks. What kind of country do you want to live in? Do you really think you're getting something for your money? Do you really think this is what's giving you your standard of living? Because I'm telling you, it's not. You know, I used to think uh, 20 years ago when I got into accounting and administration and business and taxes were a lot lower, although still ridiculously high, uh, that, you know, 5-10% of taxes on anybody was outrageous to expect anybody to, to pay more than that for the basic services that government's supposed to operate. Now, 45%, that might sound good to some, some stats to what we've heard in the past, but, you know, does that include the debt, the deficits, license filing, registration fees, monetary inflation, and other certain taxes? I think it's going to be a little higher than that once you take into account all the possibilities, but those are the most easily measurable ones. And, you know, I mentioned this before, if you're spending half of your life working for the government and that everything you do for a half of your life goes to the government, there's a word that's given to that, and that's, you know, against your choice, and that's called basically slavery. I mean, that's what it was called. Imagine if instead of paying taxes, uh, every six months people were rounded up and taken someplace where they were forced to do some sort of hard labor, like, you know, you see in Ben-Hur, one of those movies where you see slavery depicted in its most uh, base and low form. Uh, slavery, by the way, did not take that form historically. It took the form very much of what we're doing today. It was caste systems, uh, very, uh, you know, certain classes of people where one class could never aspire to be above its own class and was subjugated to another. Uh, 
uh, was forced to do certain work for the state, the government, or the elite. And uh, and in some cases, I mean, you look back, uh, it was a symbiotic relationship. It was like uh, almost an acceptable kind of a relationship. But, of course, in many cases it was not, and that gave birth to many things in the past from uh, uh, tax revolts taking the form of literal tax revolts, or even if you go back into religious history, you'll find out that a lot of uh, religious roots go back into the situations, going back to the Romans and all that stuff, and, and the tax situation and the politics that was involved. But anyways, people are wondering, like, where, where is it all going to end? Uh, how are you going to be able to afford your house, for example, if, as uh, an article that I just saw in the Free Press April 19th, it's actually true, and it says, house prices to double in the next 20 years. Well, if your price of your home is going to double, guess what? Your taxes are going to double on that home, too. And they're going up unbelievably. The, 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 the property tax on the average home is more than I was used to paying for a mortgage, let alone for the few services the home gets. And, of course, those taxes don't go to the services for the home. They go to, 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 to general services, and so much of it is just... Uh, taking from Peter and giving to Paul. It's not about hard services, it's social services and things like that that I don't think should ever come out of property. And this is why, briefly, I just would like to go over some basic steps. You've heard me in the past, perhaps on Jim's show, perhaps here, on why I advocate consumption taxes over property and income taxes. I think property and income taxes should not exist in a free society and that we should stick with consumption taxes. And if you're wondering what I basically mean by consumption tax, that could be a uh, a sales tax. It could be license, could be filing, could be uh, a registration fee. Government does service, uh, you know, serve a lot of services for us that we need. Governments are witness of ownership of property. Government is our protector in many ways, like in that sense. So we do owe something to the government for that, and of course, governments are instrument of justice. But uh, of course, people think, well, if you got rid of those two levels of taxes, our sales taxes would have to go through the roof. And, uh, well, that's not true. It's true if you continue to spend the way we're spending and keep robbing Peter to pay Paul for, for, for ridiculous social programs, if you prevent people from paying their own health care, if you keep preventing people from paying their own education, and, of course, if you're going to lower taxes, you've got to stop all that. You, people are going to have to uh, take it on themselves because guess what? That's where you're going to be in five or ten years anyway. And if you don't believe me, just look at the history of some of the, quote, third world countries that went our, our direction 10, 20 years ago. Um, I, when I was married, I had a family in, for example, Trinidad and Tobago. And I actually lived down there for a while, and I saw a country that was 20, 25 years ahead of Canada in terms of socialism, where a roadworks project meant painting a white line around a pothole on the road, and so you could see it at night where uh, the government was pretty well bankrupt all the time, where people were being forced to pay all kinds of uh, taxes for health care and education, but even the poor, and I mean the poor, would go out of their way to send their kids to private schools and to private alternatives because it was just intolerable in the public system. So what eventually happens is not only did you get your free ride at the end of the ride, you have to pay for the ride plus pay for yourself again. And that's the, that's, that's the danger where we're heading now. But very briefly, uh, just some points. Why would I pick property and income taxes or get rid of them and just have consumption taxes? I know how people hate the GST and stuff. But think about all the other things you could do away with. Let's do a comparison here just quickly. Uh, for example, um, Property and income taxes, both. They're very personal. They're privacy-violating. They require the filing of intimate details about relationships, your finances, how much you make, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, to me, that's like telling the government what, favorite, what your favorite sexual position is. Is that really any of their business? Uh, you know, whereas a consumption tax is impersonal, it's anonymous, no one knows who's paying how much, and everybody knows that everybody's paying something equal because you pay when you consume something. Uh, on the other hand, again, you look at uh, property and income taxes. They're very discriminatory. They're discriminatory against owners and earners, and even amongst owners and earners. Uh, for example, you could have two owners or two earners uh, paying different rates. Um, so that's discrimination. It's not uh, even if you're going to have uh, income tax. I always thought it should at least be at a flat rate, but we don't have that either. 
Ironically, uh, the first level, I guess the first tier, is actually higher. So poor people pay slightly higher than a slightly higher earning person. I don't know why they worked it that way, but that's just how it is. Um, property and income taxes are unequal. They're variable. They're unfair, whereas consumption taxes are equal. They're flat. They're fair. There's only one rule, and it applies to everybody. How simple do you want it? And, you know, you're not the one having to, you know... With property tax or income tax, the government can come after you for doing nothing, just for owning something. You didn't even have to act. Just for owning something, you're already in debt. And that's just an unthinkable concept to me in terms of uh, living in a free society. It's the ownership that you're paying for. It's not services. Uh, if, if, uh, if the government was only providing, say, a municipality, a service to a house, I wouldn't call that a tax. I would call that... Uh, a fee of some sort, just like you call your uh, your union gas uh, uh, thing an expense. It's an expense. It's not a it's not a tax. Um, of course, uh, we all know what uh, income taxes and property taxes do to discourage commerce, interfering in trade, costing jobs, things like that. Less so with with sales taxes, but you got to still watch those sales taxes. They shouldn't be too high. I think fifteen percent is outrageous. But we're still living with that, too, and on top of all of everything else. And, of course, uh, the other kinds of taxes encourage all kinds of government corruption, favoring some while hindering others, uh, that kind of thing. But a huge thing that I think is a huge advantage of consumption taxes is that you would have debt-free citizens as far as the government's concerned. No one would ever get into debt or face criminal charges over a failure to pay taxes because you're paying them as you go. You pay uh, a sales tax. You pay uh, a license, filing, registration. You don't accumulate debt because you're sitting at home or you got sick or you made too much money, which to me is a, a total contradiction in terms. But anyways, those are a few of the, uh, the, the things. And, of course, uh, property and income taxes are highly coercive, requiring no action on the part of those whom they're, against whom they're levied. And uh, I would even argue that sales taxes, as long as they're reasonable, are essentially voluntary to the sen to, to this you know to the point that you can actually choose to buy something or not or even go to another jurisdiction if you really had to to escape a certain tax because then it would get competitive as well. But anyways, that's just the tip of the iceberg on the whole tax situation there. And um, one of the many reasons that I believe that uh, just a straight uh, sales tax of some sort would be the best thing, and then we wouldn't have to worry about all these other situations. Um, before we go, I just wanted to say a few things about uh, this show. Um, we're just winding down to the last couple minutes. Um, calling the show just right. Again, if you, if you missed my, uh, what would I call it, my orientation last week of what the show is about and what do I mean by right versus right wing. I don't regard myself as a right winger as such, and I outlined a number of issues uh, where I differed with uh, so-called right-wingers last week. But um, basically, uh, if we're still around next week and the week after, I think we'll see this show evolve a little bit. It'll get uh, a little more content-heavy, more uh, variety in it, we're hoping to do. Um, and if you have any uh, input or feedback or things you'd like to hear on the show, we'd certainly like to hear about them. And you can certainly direct them here at CHRW, the folks, uh, Zoltan and the folks here. And um, and hopefully we'll be here again uh, next week on Thursday. So uh, until then, I just want to say this is Bob Metz, and you have been listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9, where hopefully we'll be with you again next week from 11 till noon. Until then, take care and stay right. To black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright